Campbell, add my welcome to Matt's. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you're our guest, we're particularly grateful that you would be here. And we look forward to getting to know you better after our service is done. It has been our practice over this past year to continue our church-wide discipleship. Matt was talking about how we are seeking to be disciples, to grow as disciples, to make disciples as we're seeking all together to grow as disciples by going through the New City Catechism together to remind ourselves or learn for the first time some things, foundations of the faith. And so this last week, we learned question 45. Uh, Before we continue to this week's question, is there anyone that would like to recite for us question 45? All right, I see a few hands. Go ahead. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, the question was, is baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? And the answer is no, only the blood of Christ can do that. The renewal of the Holy Spirit can cleanse us from our sin. Well, uh, this morning we are transitioning from baptism to the Lord's Supper. So question 46 has to do with the Lord's Supper. And the question is simple. What is the Lord's Supper? So would you read with me the answer to question 46, which is still that same one, just has a different number. All right. So together... (laughs) Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. Well, there's a good bit to unpack there, but uh, there are wonderful truths for us to be marinating in and recalling together how rich of truths that we have to celebrate as we come, and and one such as this that we look to month after month to keep the Lord's Supper before us, making sure we're aware what it signifies as we do that together. Well, this morning, we are introducing the next book that I will be going through as I um, occasionally have a chance to speak in the midst of Matt's series on Psalms, and then Uh, a little over a month from now, as he begins the book of Luke. The book that I will be going through is the prophet Haggai. And this is where I'm going to wait for applause. I knew knew there was pent-up excitement about Haggai. Now, I doubt many of us have spent much time in Haggai, partly because it's in a section 
of our Bibles that we don't tend to spend a lot of time in, in the minor prophets. Some of you may not even have been aware that there is a book in the Bible called Haggai. Even if we've stuck with our Bible reading plan long enough to get to these guys at the end of the Old Testament, we may not know how they connect to the bigger story. And they often just seem odd, funny names, sometimes some peculiar action, if there's any action at all, and not just a bunch of promises and warnings. It can leave us unsure of what to do about them. Add to the fact that Haggai is one of the shortest books of the Old Testament, so it may be one that we've simply overlooked. It's a total of 38 verses, two short chapters, which means people are perhaps more likely to be asking Haggai who this morning rather than saying finally, breathing a sigh of relief that we have gotten to this point in our study. Because this is less familiar territory for many of us, today will be primarily an introduction to Haggai. And let me begin by pointing out that the designation of minor prophets generally has to do not with their insignificance, but with the brevity of the writing contained in each. The major prophets are ones like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah that are lengthy, and the minor prophets are simply grouped together because they're shorter, not unimportant. After all, they are prophets. They are messengers of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping maker of heaven and earth. What they communicate carries the weight and authority of the God they speak for. And though Haggai's message is short, he is somewhat unique in that the people of his day actually responded to it. The ministry God called most prophets to was one filled with frustration and rejection. Last week, Matt quoted Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem and his desire to embrace them as a mother hen would gather her chicks. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And elsewhere, Jesus quoted how no prophet is honored in their hometown. So Haggai had the uncommon prophetic experience of having people largely respond to his call to action. In that sense, Haggai was more influential in his time than most of Israel's prophets. So what was the ministry and message of this unique prophet? Why Haggai? Here's what I want us to see this morning. That God is at work in the world for his people. That God is at work in his people 
through his word so that his people might know and embrace him. So would you turn with me now to Haggai chapter 1. If you're not sure where to look, go to the beginning of the book of Matthew and then go left a couple of pages and you'll find Haggai. We're going to begin by reading the first two verses. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's as far as we're going to read in Haggai this morning, and we're going to draw out some truths that we'll see here and just the general context that we find ourselves in. But just a quick lay of the land of how Haggai is set up. It's a series of four sermons that he gives over a period of four months. This is one of the most specifically timed writings that we have and where we can trace back exactly to within a day exactly when um, Haggai was speaking. The question I want us to begin with is what do we see here? Obviously we see that there has been some pretty big problems that have developed for Haggai's audience because the temple needs to be rebuilt. That's not a good start. The great stone structure built by Solomon was the physical representation of God dwelling with his people. The place where they made their atoning sacrifices and the center of the nation's worship. And we see here right off the bat that it has been destroyed. That's big. What else do we learn here? Who are the people in our neighborhood? Haggai is named as the prophet. No other lineage is given. He may be less familiar to us, but he needed no other introduction to his audience. We also have Joshua, the high priest. And just to be clear, this is not the same Joshua that took over from Moses and led the children of Israel into the promised land. This is a different Joshua almost a thousand years later, who's serving as high priest. And we have Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Z is actually a descendant of King David. But here, he's only given the title of governor, while Darius is the name of the current king. Now, Darius's name may be a bit more familiar to us than Haggai's, which makes sense because he was king, but he wasn't Israel's king. Which leads to the question, why is Haggai introducing his message by mentioning someone else's king? That's actually where we want 
to begin seeing our first point developed this morning. That first point is that God is at work in the world for his people. Now, we know our Bibles. We know that God is always at work. One of the very first pictures we get in Genesis 1, what Matt went through with the men a bit yesterday, is that God is at work. He's creating all that we see using his powerful words. And he personally formed man from the dust of the earth to be his image bearer. And just because he rested after the sixth day of creation, it doesn't mean that he has been idle ever since. In fact, Psalm 127 plainly states that if God wasn't about doing his work, none of our work would have any effect at all. The psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God is not a cosmic clockmaker that just wound things up and let it go. He is at work in the world, intimately involved for his people. Where do we see that here in Haggai? I, I know many of you know your Old Testament history. But I also know enough of us find it at least a bit confusing. That I think it, it's worthwhile to spend some time reviewing a little more of an extended history lesson in order that we might more clearly see our first point of God being at work in the world for his people. See, we tend to be familiar with God's promise to Abraham to make him, his descendants, a great nation of Jacob's 12 sons becoming the tribes of Israel, Joseph being sold by his brothers, which God uses to rescue the whole family during a severe famine, relocating them to Egypt, and then becoming so numerous there that the Egyptians are intimidated by them, so much so that they make the Israelites their slaves so they don't just take over. Then 400 years pass with them being in bondage before the great salvation event of the Old Testament when God uses Moses to deliver his people from bondage and decimates their previous captors, Egypt, in the process. On the way out, as they are in the wilderness, before they were able to take possession of the land, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God makes a covenant with them. He gives them his law, the way of relating with him, how this relationship is to work, including the blessings 
that were theirs because of this relationship with Yahweh, the great I Am, creator of heaven and earth, and the curses, the warnings, should they turn instead to other gods. We read places like Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. There are other warnings. Some are actually quite graphic in which Moses lays out details of another nation coming and laying siege to them with horrific scenes of what that will involve, including cannibalizing their own children. From the very beginning, before they even took possession of the land, God made clear what their priorities were to be. The priority of their relationship with him Warnings to run after idols, to run after gods that do not speak or hear or act on their behalf. Then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And as we saw in our study of Judges, well, the Israelites are a pretty messy bunch. They demand a king before long, and, and they get Saul, who himself was kind of messy. And even at this young point in the nation's history, God has already shown how incredibly merciful, patient, and long-suffering he is by continually pursuing them and calling them back to himself. Then we see a new king established. God gives them a different kind of king. He gives them David, not chosen for his outward appearance, but because he has a heart after God's own heart. And so God promises to establish his throne forever. Part of the blessings of how he related with Yahweh. 
But we see that that wonderful relationship and the blessings enjoyed didn't actually last very long. Israel enjoys a brief period of favor and influence on the world stage during David and his son Solomon's reign. But it quickly seems evident afterward that Israel's best days may have already passed. Because the very next generation after Solomon, the nation is split in two. See, things being messy is definitely a recurring theme for God's chosen people. Only two tribes, Judah, David's tribe, and Benjamin, and some of the Levites follow David's descendants, keeping his line on the throne. The rest of the tribes set up a separate monarchy based out of Samaria, just a little north of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. They had ten tribes after all. And the southern kingdom, with just two of the tribes, was named Judah. Now, I mentioned yet that the people tend to be a mess. Neither nation would qualify as the shining model of what God's people were supposed to look like. Did I also mention that God is incredibly merciful, patient, and long-suffering? Israel's history, the northern kingdom, with ten tribes is shockingly wicked. It was characterized by idolatry and false worship from beginning to end. In its history of almost 250 years, there were 19 kings of Israel. Scripture characterizes 18 of them as wicked There's only one where there's really any positive mentioned, and even that was mixed in Scripture's assessment. But Judah wasn't a lot better. Four of their 20 kings had mixed reviews, which is an improvement. And there were another four that were identified as godly kings leading their people back towards Yahweh after seasons of rebellion and forgetfulness even of who he was. But in 350 years, those were the only significant interruptions in the continued march of Abraham's offspring away from the God of their forefathers. Now, they were warned. Of course, their persistence in turning their backs on God didn't mean that he had abandoned them. 
Again and again and again, he sent his prophets to warn the people of the errors of their ways and to call them back to their pursuing, rescuing, merciful, patient, covenant-keeping God. The prophets would go back to the law given to Moses to point not just to the promised blessings of following Yahweh, trying to appeal to them, but also warning them with the promised judgment that awaited them for following other gods, including those warnings of being conquered by foreign nations and returning again to captivity. Israel, the northern kingdom, was first to find out the hard way that God was faithful to those promises too. After two and a half centuries of rebelling from God and despising his messengers, God sent the Assyrian army to conquer the northern kingdom. Those the Assyrians didn't kill, they took captive. The land was so emptied that Assyria sent Gentiles to occupy the land promised to Abraham's offspring. Some escaped and fled to the southern kingdom or to the surrounding nations, but the northern nation was so scattered and wiped out, it was functionally decimated and it ceased to exist as an identifiable people ever again. Judah, the southern kingdom, was preserved a bit longer by their periods of revival. But their overall trajectory continued to lead them to a similar fate as their neighbors to the north. 135 years after Israel's fall, Judah was also conquered. Their defeat was at the hand of the Babylonians. After a long siege, where many of those warnings became their reality, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He tore down the walls. He tore down the temple. He burned it all. He plundered anything of value. He took away all the vessels from the temple. And he took the remaining people. Daniel's the one that we are probably most familiar with. His story and his account of Israel in exile. Judah. This was devastating to God's chosen people in every sense of the word. There were those who had believed that as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem, they could not be conquered. After all, this was the house of the God who rained down plagues upon Egypt and parted the Red Sea. The God who had a history of fighting his people's battles for them. 
So seeing their city in ruin and being removed from the land of promise was an absolute national disgrace that filled them with disillusionment and despair. But it was also a turning point. People started paying attention to the messages of these unpopular prophets whose warnings had now become their nation's reality. Maybe they did have something worthwhile to say. In their humiliation, hearts began to turn to God. And God was at work rebuilding his people. Jerusalem and the temple were in ruins. They were outside of the land of promise, but they were not abandoned by God. He was not just a God that resided in one city. He was again showing himself to be incredibly merciful patient and long-suffering. So without Judah being able to improve their own situation, Yahweh again acted on their behalf. A new world power arose to humble once mighty Babylon. The Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians and Abraham's offspring transferred to their realm. Captives of Babylon, Babylon's defeated by Persia, so now they're captives of Persia. But things quickly began to take a different outlook. The Persian king Cyrus acted favorably to the Jews. We read a proclamation from him in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, which had been spoken 70 years prior, might be fulfilled, the Lord, Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. While the Jews were powerless to save themselves. 
God orchestrated world events and provided a pagan king to reveal to them that he was still on his throne. That Yahweh still was sovereign over all. That he could work on their behalf, not just in Jerusalem, but in their captivity in a foreign land. This meant that many were able to return. Now, some did not. Some stayed in Persia. In a few months, we'll study Esther, who was one of those that stayed behind in Persia. But 50,000 returned to Jerusalem. And Cyrus not only said that it was okay to rebuild the temple, he provided supplies and building materials and returned the thousands of temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had plundered. They got to work rebuilding right away. The foundation was laid and they celebrated by making sacrifices to God once again. They had much to rejoice in. Though conquered, And exiled, David's line was not blotted out, something that was frequently done by conquering nations. Zerubbabel, David's heir, was allowed to return to Jerusalem as governor. The priesthood also was still intact. In fact, it was now more faithful and attentive to God's word than it had been in centuries. Like many others who have endured the fires of adversity, God was refining Judah and working for their good, even through their severe affliction. And these are elements that Haggai wants to remind Judah of at the start of his message. But that's not quite where the people are as he begins. See, Cyrus was no longer ruling Persia. Haggai mentions Darius, who was the fourth ruler since Babylon fell. The work on the temple, reconstruction, has now been on hold for about 15 years after the people ran into opposition from those who occupied the land during Judah's absence. We can read about this in the book of Ezra. Their initial excitement of seeing God is with them. Well, that seems like a distant memory now. People have moved on other priorities. Their leaders are not calling them to action. So into this place, God sends Haggai to help his people remember what matters most. That God is at work in the world for his people. In worldwide events and in invisible moments, our merciful, patient God is always working. Two more 
brief points before we wrap up. God is at work in the world through for his people. Our second point is that God works in his people through his word. I've already mentioned how warnings against idolatry and the resulting exile were baked into the law delivered by Moses a thousand years earlier. And over hundreds of years, faithful prophets sought to remind Israel of these truths and convince them to change their unfaithful ways. Those prophets were captured by God and compelled by his word. His word had worked in them and convinced them what they must do even when no one else listened or followed even when they were persecuted and put to death at those they were trying to help rescue. They didn't wait for the horrible warnings to come true before they committed themselves to Yahweh or call others to return to him as well. And though many that they preached to never committed themselves to him and perished, And many others did not heed his word till they experienced the devastation of its truthfulness. The word remained their great need. Circumstances may have been what God used to get his people's attention, but his word is how we make sense of his world. It reveals God at work. It rebukes and corrects. And it is also the only reliable source of true comfort and salvation. Just as Judah needed to be convinced of the word's corrections, they also needed it as a source of their hope. They needed truths. Again, afresh, like Deuteronomy 30, 4 through 6, to be convinced that God wasn't done working yet. Where God declared through Moses that if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. God declared way back that he was for his people even after their waywardness. And those who had been brought back into the land needed to be reminded that God was still for them. And yes, they've hit some speed bumps along the way. 
God. Still calling them to relate with him like no other. In the first two verses of his message, Haggai wants to be absolutely clear who is addressing the people. He says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. And then, thus says the Lord of hosts. Because he, he knew that the people didn't need platitudes or a pep talk or wishful thinking. They needed God's word. They needed to know he was still with them, still pursuing them. Because God is at work in the world for his people. But God works in his people through his word. And more specifically, God works in the world and through his word so that his people might know and embrace him. In verse 2, we see the introduction of the burden of Haggai's message that we'll look at throughout our study. The rebuilding of the temple. It says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And just for a quick spoiler alert, if you're not familiar with Haggai, he's going to tell them they're wrong. It is time to rebuild. He's going to call them back to work. And it's possible that we could read words like this and interpret Haggai's call to resume the work on the temple as the importance God places on his house. To use it to kickstart a building fund. We've got some siding that needs repaired. We've got a little work that needs to be done out in our parking lot. That's not the place we're going with this. Yes, Haggai is going to call the people to complete what they started. But his point is not about the building or a building. God wasn't sending Haggai to say he had no place to rest. Indeed, what did Solomon say when he dedicated the original temple? He said in 1 Kings 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Rebuilding wasn't about a physical building, but what that building signified. The temple was a physical representation of God with them. And just as we read a few minutes ago with this week's catechism, Jesus gave Baptism and communion as physical representations of his saving work. Tangible reminders to help us focus on what matters most. What is eternally true. The building for Judah was similar. It was a physical representation, a reminder of God with them. Initially, they were eager to see it rebuilt 
until they ran into some red tape. And things got put on hold. Then time went by and they simply moved on to other things. They settled in and did not prioritize that which was to set them apart from every other people on the face of the earth. Not an ornate building, but the presence of God himself among them. What they needed was not a building worthy of God, but a hunger for his presence with them. Yahweh himself was to be their desire, their love, their priority. He wants relationship with him to be his people's defining identity. The law and the prophets repeated attempts over the centuries to point Israel and Judah to the law were never about getting them to adhere to a list of do's and don'ts calling them back to a person. To forsake deaf and mute idols and relate with the living God. The God who created all the earth and covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the God who delivered them out of slavery. To the Lord. The Lord. A merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting their iniquity of the fathers and their children? children's children to the third and fourth generation. It was all about calling them back to him. And here's the point that we mustn't miss. We can believe that he is sovereign and in control of all things, that he is working out every detail of history and our story, but if we fail to recognize It's out of his great love for us. We've missed the whole point. It's the big story he reveals throughout his word. The whole book. This whole thing is about his self-revelation. It's not a thousand pages of Proverbs or moral instructions. It is God declaring to us, this is who I am. Come and know me. The God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God who did not walk out. Even when you wanted nothing to do with him. Even when you were pursuing your own way because you thought you knew better. 
faithful God. God so committed to having Judah relate to him, he was willing to route them through Babylon to get there. And more importantly, God so committed to relate to you and me that he was willing to route his son through Calvary to get us there. God is at work in the world for his people. God works in his people through his word. All for a glorious purpose. So that his people might know and embrace him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to see? Lord, would you help us not to be distracted by our surroundings and circumstances or trying to understand that we miss the God who's working in all of it to declare his love for us. To reveal what you have already done in history. To bring us to yourself. To make us your people. To remain faithful to us forever. Lord, would you overwhelm us with your goodness recognition of your great work on our behalf that we might live and enjoy relating with you forevermore this we pray amen what a privilege we have to be together to look at our great God we have the privilege of continuing this conversation in care groups this week. If you don't have one, please see us. We'd love to get you connected with one in your area. ask that you would just quickly pick up your children.